Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. All right, good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our podcast, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! Hey, so, how's it going? Good. My microphone is now working and recording. Ah, excellent. So. Excellent. Yes. Yay. Technical difficulties sorted out. Yes. Lovely. Ah. <laughs> Always good. Awesome. All right. All right. So in our last couple of episodes, we talked a lot about decolonization and we did the Americas, um, Africa, Asia. The, That's it. Are there any Mostly. other places? No. Nope. <laughs> That's it. That's what, those are all the places there are. Yes. Uh, so now we had we had been talking about circling back to the Middle Ages because, you know, over the course of the times that uh, we talked about everything else, we were ranging pretty freely from, I don't know, roughly the early part of the common era through to the Victorian age um, when we, as we discussed things, maybe even before before the beginning of the common era. Um, and luckily, as as luck would have it, a uh, alert listener sent in some questions about um, what are non-Christian theater traditions like, which, to be fair, we have talked a lot about Christianity and theater, but not about not as much about other cultures, other traditions. And... Um, he was also interested in the establishment of secular theater. So it seems like the bigger question is maybe, what was the evolution of theater like and how was it influenced by religion, um, Christianity, and other religions? And since I know that uh, it takes very little to uh, induce you to talk about medieval theater, um, this seemed like it might be an interesting topic for us. Yes. I've made sort of all kinds of noises on my end that you'll have to edit out because I've been like tapping my okay. fingers together excitedly and things like that. <laughs> yes. So sorry about that. Yeah. So essentially this time we will start with some of these big questions and then we will just go into some of the specifics of sort of um, non-Christian theater traditions. And then next time we will sort of come back around to uh, go a little more in depth into some of these questions and include Christian theater traditions um, and look mm -hmm. a little more sort of generally at uh, what theater was like. But really, to answer these questions, you know, we need a lot of background in what else was out there. So we'll go over some of the specifics today and then maybe have a more sort of thematic discussion next time. But one of the things I did want to say is that, uh, for example, uh, evolution is a phenomenal, phenomenal theory when it comes to biological life forms on this planet. That is what it is for, right? Um, why do mm -hmm. 14 different types of finches have different beaks or whatever exactly it was? Why do we have eyeballs? You know, things like that. <laughs> Excellent yes. questions. But when it comes to cultural things, right, um, evolution, of course, does not really work the same way, right? Um, and, of mm -hmm. course, we use it as a sort of descriptive term. Um, but the problem is that for a very, very long time, there was a real sense that theater did, in fact, sort of, in quotes, evolve, right, out of religious ceremonies, for example. And that is sort of maybe true in a general sense, but also definitely not true in other ways. <laughs> um, and 
in the field today, actually. It's one of the reasons why you have both theater studies and performance studies. Um, theater studies, oh, studies okay. theater specifically, which is to say uh, performance that is um, generally fictionalized in some level, right? Where the actor mm -hmm. is playing a character who is not them, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, and the audience knows that the actor and the character are two different people. Sort of, I'm a dude dressed up like another dude, yes. pretending to be a different dude sort of yes. situation. Oh my gosh. A great moment in cinema, which is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. <laughs> playing an actor who is doing yes. blackface as a way of commenting on blackface in Tropic Thunder. Yes. Mm -hmm. Actually, a quick note on Tropic Thunder here, um, which is phenomenal. I teach it along with things like Blazing Saddles, of course. <laughs> you know, movies that comment on these things. And, of course, have these backstories. Yeah. So, for example, um, Blazing Saddles, of course, Mel Brooks wrote it with Richard Pryor, and then Richard Pryor wasn't allowed to be in it. The studios wouldn't insure him, I think. Something along these lines, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they said, well, because he takes drugs. And Mel Brooks said, well, so does everybody else, right? It was clearly yes. really about race, right? They wouldn't um, insure an African-American actor who had the behavior types that Richard Pryor did at the time. Well, of course, they would have mm -hmm. for a white actor. Um, and Mel Brooks offered not to do it. Um, and they found Cleveland Little. Uh, and Richard Pryor said, no, you should make the movie, basically. Um, and so they did. Yeah. Which is good. We would be really bereft if they had not. Um, yeah. And Cleveland Little did a great job. Did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but... You know, these sorts of moments when there are really all these commentaries on on things, right? Um, and so there are tons mm -hmm. of brilliant clips in Blazing Cells that um, delve into topics that I think a lot of people, the way we talked about when we've talked about decolonization, people don't always realize that there's a colonial history behind a lot of those things, right? Yes. Um, so... The song Camp Town Ladies, for example, in Blazing Saddles, of course, was a minstrel song. Um, and the way, you know, there's a scene that plays out around that. Um, and I think these days a lot of people might not really know where that song came from. But, right, there are all these little mm -hmm. things like that that get sort of... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes we hear about it, like, once in a while there'll be an uproar. I think what I heard about was ice cream trucks using the song Turkey in the Straw. Oh, yes. Or yes. something. Which was something I only knew from, like, I don't know, beginning string studies. It's one of, like, the songs with three notes they can right. give you if you're learning cello or violin yes. or something. Uh, but then, you know, somebody does research and they go, oh, this is a minstrel yes. song. from, And it, it didn't used to be called Turkey in the Straw. It was called something else. Right. Um, yeah. And it's it always winds up feeling really... Like a weird thing to uncover, yes. honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're like, I've been aware of this my whole life, and yet right. I had no idea. Yeah. And now I just don't know how to feel about it. Because obviously it comes from a terrible tradition. Yes. Um, but it's, you know, right. what do I do? It's it's in my strings book. Yes. Well, but this is also sort of the thing <laughs> that, right, to be aware. So like we talked about D.W. Griffith, you don't stop using all yeah. the shots he created. But you have to sort of acknowledge where they right. came from, right? Um, sitcoms, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of the scenes we do um, in sitcoms, people do. I mean, the things we watch, mm -hmm. a lot of those types of skits originated also in minstrel shows, right? As part of vaudeville. Oh. Um, so okay. there's this history just beyond a lot of that stuff. 
and it's just sort of mm-hmm. to see it and to acknowledge it um, and to recognize it, right? Uh, stand up, same thing, right? Came from sort of the interlocutor, different roles in the minstrel show. Um, you know, so just recognizing this history, right? But mm-hmm. that's the great thing about a movie like Blazing Saddles is that it really does interrogate it if you're sort of paying attention. Yeah. Um, and Tropic Thunder actually does the same brilliantly. Um, of course, for Tropic Thunder, race is only one of them, right? That's via Robert Downey mm-hmm. Jr. But of course, oh gosh, when did that actually come out? Oh, I think 2009. Oh god. Maybe around the same time he was Iron Man, I think. So I'm going to say... Yeah, 2008. Okay. So that was 12 years ago. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, up through <laughs> last year, and probably this year, but I sort of forgot what else happened this year, there were still plenty of white actors being cast in roles that should not have been played by white actors, right? And, of course, the mm-hmm. point of Tropic Thunder is, yes, we don't literally do blackface anymore, but that doesn't make it any better. And it actually harkens all the way back right. um White Christmas has a minstrel scene in it that they do not in blackface but it's specifically called the minstrel show and it's clearly a minstrel show they just don't do it in blackface okay which doesn't really change it it, of course is the point yeah (laughs) so unlike holiday inn which is where white the song white christmas originated of course they've realized they shouldn't have an actual blackface number but they haven't sort of changed the minstrel number yeah so we have this really sort of you know, interesting way in which that is still part of our situation. Um, the Met a few years ago did an Otello. They had originally, they cast a white Hector in the lead. There was, of course, mm-hmm. fallout because it's not like you okay. can't find black singers who can sing the role. I think I remember looking at the photos from that. Yeah. Well, what they ended up doing was they kept the white actor. They didn't do it in blackface. Oh, um, and the director, okay. ooh, someone famous, I'm not going to mention any names because it's not necessarily his fault. You know, everyone gets signed on to productions at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, but he sort of made a statement that, that said, you know, he never planned to do it in blackface. Of course, you know, but he also didn't drop out or demand that right. change the singer. And, you know, these things get planned like three years in advance, but still, come on. Mm-hmm. Three years in advance from three years ago wasn't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so there are a lot of these issues, of course. Um, and so Tropic Thunder, of course, is making fun of that via Robert Downey Jr. Um, and But then, of course, it's making fun of all the things that Hollywood does. So right, the way Hollywood portrays war is at the center. The way actors mm-hmm. sort of talk about being soldiers based on um, his own experience uh, as... Ooh, in what... Spielberg movie, I think, where he didn't go to boot camp, but everyone else did for like two weeks to sort of learn about yeah. it. And he said that when the actors came back, just the way they talked about it, mm-hmm. sort of um, as though they'd been to war or something, uh, and he just found it sort of ridiculous. And Ben Stiller, by the way, is the one I'm talking about here, the director and writer, and of course, yeah. also the center of Tropic Thunder. And it just stuck with him. <laughs> the way in which Hollywood does this, right? And his character, of course, is also making fun of um, action heroes generally. Uh, but then also he his character plays a role um, who is not neuronormative. Right. Not neuronormative. And, uh, or has played a character who's not neuronormative. And there are a lot of commentaries on that. And that, of course, is about, you know, Forrest Gump, but also really about 
a, a movie Sean Penn did. Uh, Rain Man? Uh, no. Rain Man, of course, is another one. Right, Hoffman. That's another one. But no, Sean Penn did it. Oh. I, sorry, I have difficulty tailing Sean Penn and Dustin Hoffman <laughs> apart. <laughs> That's, a, you know, funny. No, but... Uh, no, occasionally, you know, they actors become famous based on the fact that they look sort of like other popular actors. Yes. And as somebody who's like somewhat face blind, it really messes me up. I mean, they're both excellent actors in their own way. Yes. For sure. They're sort of distinct actors, I say. Um, I Am Sam is the movie that they're making fun of specifically. Oh, okay. Yeah. But they're also, of course, making fun of, yeah, all the times that's been done, right? Even when you can say it's a good movie, Forrest Gump is a good movie. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, right, you have neuronormative actors playing roles that are not and you know all of the same problems anyway so you have you just have this whole right tropic thunder every one of those characters is playing a different sort of caricature that hollywood creates right and the movie as a whole is commenting on those caricatures and just the ridiculousness of uh the way hollywood sort of exploits all of this right for Mm -hmm. (laughs) their own gain (laughs) yeah I very much remember before it came out the amount of controversy there was because like aspects of it like the that he was doing blackface had leaked. Yes. Without the context, the context. around it. Yeah. Yeah. Um you and know. then after it came out I felt like a lot of people were like, "Oh." Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. And of course that doesn't mean, you know, there's still sort of a general rule that one should never do it. But there are these right. rare moments, right? Um, you know, Spike Lee's Bamboozled is another one where they're mm-hmm. really commenting on minstrelsy. So there, you know, there are these rare moments where it is a real commentary on what's happening, and they, you know, they do it in a very, very specific way, right? <laughs> um, yeah. They have, you know, we see him as an actor doing this. So of course, the, he's not playing. He is never ever playing a an African-American role, mm-hmm. really, right? It's Robert right. Downey Jr., who, first of all, we all know is American, playing an Australian actor. We can make any number of guesses as to who he might be, but, um, right, who is, <laughs> you know, however many Oscars he's supposed to have won. He gets so deep into each role that he, you know, sort of becomes it, so he gets cast yeah. here. So, um, And they don't do it sort of straight out blackface he's had this sort of controversial pigment something surgery but he being the yes. actor that robert downey jr is playing mm-hmm. anyway so they go all out in this direction right and then of course they also have brandon t jackson in the movie who is an actual african-american actor who at the end finally does basically slap robert downey jr so you know it's not but that's of course the the point is sort of all of this stuff going yeah. on i will also say to bring us back around um the opening of Tropic Thunder has fake commercials. <laughs> yes. Uh, for like fake trailers, fake commercials, right? Utilizing the actors who are in the movie, right? And one of them is this film with Robert Downey Jr., supposedly Robert Downey Jr. and Tobey Maguire, except it's, it's actually, of course, the, the actor that he plays in the movie. Mm-hmm. So Kirk Lazarus and Tobey Maguire. <laughs> Um, in a movie called something like Satan's Alley, where they're both monks and they're clearly gonna have sex, basically. Yes. Um, which is itself making fun of who knows how many countless tropes that Hollywood has exploited in various <laughs> ways. 
but definitely among them, right? Um, the whole right forbidden gay love scenes, etc., etc. Blah blah blah. Yes. Yeah. So you know, it's it comments on as many things as it possibly can. But also, of course, yes, that's that's sort of what's behind theater, right? Is <laughs> um, you could however many levels of people you're playing that arguably none of them are you. Yes. Right? That is theater. And what differentiates theater, differentiates theater from performance studies, is that performance studies is about performance of any kind, but specifically and frequently, the types of performance that do not involve the separation of the actor and the character. So where the mm -hmm. actor is playing themselves, essentially. Right? Um, and so we could say, for example, any time... Um, you know, the average college student, when they show up to class with their books and their, right, they're performing college student, mm -hmm. right? When they go off to work, yeah, they're performing, you know, intern or barista or whatever it is, right? We have all these different roles we perform. What do we do? What are the rituals? How do we get ready? Um, yeah. and that of course does relate to religion in a lot of ways, right? Religion also has rituals and ways to get ready and preparations, um, a lot of us have daily mm -hmm. rituals, right? So performance studies really comments on that aspect of things. Um, so it, it does seem in a lot of ways, right? Uh, if we start to think of, you know, our job or our roles as students as in some ways a performance, I think people in the customer service industry mm -hmm. probably do on some level, right? If you perform really well, then people will like you and yeah. hopefully give you better tips. You know, I think a lot of things, even like parenthood, since mm -hmm. I performed that a lot. Yes. <laughs> you know, people talk about having a parenting instinct, right. which is total bullshit. Right. <laughs> and, but like, yes. seriously, you, you, uh, you have a baby and then you're like, I don't have any idea what to do with it, but right. I have to do something. So there is a certain amount of like, this is what I've seen other parents do. So I'm going to try those things out. Yes. Right. And a lot of people wind up pulling a lot from their own childhoods yep. because their parents are the ones they watch parenting the most, right? Absolutely. So, yes. and so once you start thinking about it, this is total, totally a digression, but you mm -hmm. can see how things get perpetuated from generation to generation, mm -hmm. like certain mindsets or whatever, even if people would think of themselves as more progressive in other ways, right? Because, um, they're just trying to do what they've seen other people do. Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't mean, I don't want to imply that people don't love their kids or whatever, right. but just that like... <laughs> well, they do love them, right? They're it's hard them and you alive. have to That's figure something out. Yeah. yeah. You have to figure something out. So. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that is sort of the funny thing, right? That, um, you know, um, that is how culture both changes and perpetuates itself, right? Which is to say mm -hmm. it's, it's really nothing like evolution. <laughs> um, yeah. It's very different from evolution. Um, and that is particularly because, of course, it can be changed. You know, maybe you have learned something, right? There might be a specific thing you're like, you know, that didn't work on me. Is there something else I can do? Yeah. And then you ask your village elder or look it up on the internet or whatever it is, right? <laughs> Do not look it up on the internet. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of hysterical people on the internet, oh, tons. it turns yes. out. I know. This is true for all things. Um, yeah. But you know, right? So there can be those changes. But of course, then also, that is how things get perpetuated. Um, and, yeah. you know, culture, all of these things, right? Um, 
in evolution, you know, you have it passes itself on right via genes and so on. Um, right. But of course, parenting and things can be passed on in any number of ways, right? Um, if you spent a lot mm-hmm. of time at a friend's house as a kid, you might also be doing what their parents did, right? Yeah. You don't have to be related Absolutely. in any way. Um, and if you if they were a different cultural background than the one you grew up in, you might nonetheless have grown up with like a real love of whatever their traditions were, right? And they might become mm-hmm. your family traditions as well as you get older. Um, so there are all these sorts of interesting things. Um, but that's sort of the idea, right? Performance studies looks at those and says, well, this is how things like religion permeate performance, right? Um, particularly if you are religious, then probably there are a lot of things you do even in your daily life that sort of reflect that. Mm-hmm. And so that is absolutely true, right? But where religious ritual and theater intersect is a very, 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 not even murky area. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I sort of want to compare it to like some of the seabeds where you can't see anything. (laughs) Um, It's not entirely, we don't entirely know that 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 actually exists. Yes. Right. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the shark might suddenly swim at you out of the, you know, you didn't see it coming because you can't see anything. Um, but we haven't run into it yet. Right. Okay. Um, so there so are... in a sense, we have... I know we've talked about, like, passion plays yes. or different types of things with religious themes. Yes. But it wasn't necessarily meant to be a religious ritual that they were well, fulfilling. It's not... I mean, like... Right. Different um, from a Purim spiel, for example. Sort of. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that even counts as a ritual because well, there's a lot of drinking. Yes. Well, but I don't know. There's a lot of drinking in a lot of religions. Definitely Judaism. That's, okay. Fair. I look at the Seder, right? We talked about that. <laughs> yeah. In an early episode. Um, yeah. It's not that so much. Theater is definitely part of religion mm-hmm. to various degrees, right? Which is to say, there is a, there are degrees to which acting, right, um, taking a role that's not you absolutely plays a part in religion yeah the question is is that where did religion start doing that first and mm. then people started doing it outside of religious contexts okay that that answer is the one we don't have right and for a long time people just assumed that religion did it first mm-hmm. and that then it spread to non-religious context and that mm. is actually not at all clear you can't prove that okay. anywhere, right? So um, some of the really early theatrical types of things that we have are definitely tied to religion. So Egypt, um, or even further back, Mesopotamia, um, you have these sort of rituals that surrounded, we have actually discussed, I think, Ishtar going to the underworld. Yeah. Um, and there were rituals that surrounded that, um, and her may, that may have involved her statue, right? Um was that theater? We don't know, honestly. We don't know if there was anything that would could be considered acting. We don't know where that where we would think of that being on the line. This mm-hmm. is, of course, another problem is that we tend to differentiate these things in a way that peoples frequently haven't. Right. Right. Which is say that we separate theater and performance, but probably a lot of people didn't. Mm-hmm. You know. So on some level, yes, that probably was theater. But there may not have been anyone pretending to be someone they weren't, because the statue is, of course, Ishtar, and the priests are the priests, you know. So it's not clear that any of them portrayed other roles, 
but obviously it's a very elaborate performance. We can see where it would have something in common with theater. But that does not mean that theater evolved from that. Theater may also have existed, right? These mm -hmm. things can exist sort of side by side. It's not clear which came first. They influence each other. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear that one evolved from the other. Okay. Um, so in Egypt, uh, some of the rituals surrounding Osiris, right? The sort of death and resurrection of Osiris, um, which sometimes get counted as sort of one of the early, in quotes, plays. Um, although, again, was it theater in the way we would consider theater? Not clear. Um, the most obvious example, of course, are the Greeks, right? Right. The plays that they did are absolutely theater. It's where we get the word. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they are part of the rituals for Dionysus. So, um, that is absolutely true, right? Yeah. They are rituals for Dionysus. That being said, um, they are not with one famous, famous exception, really, which is Euripides' The Bacchae, for which he won first prize posthumously. Um, they're otherwise not about Dionysus. Right? They are about, yeah. you know, Lots humans, of things. mostly. Yeah. Right? The gods show up here and there, right? Famously. But they're mostly about sort of legendary characters, right? Mm -hmm. Mythic characters, but mostly human mythic characters. And really, they're about, they're the same way Shakespeare wrote, you know, all of his War of the Roses. Yeah. Plays, okay. Right? Um, it's writing about stories that everybody knows <laughs> to talk about your own day. Right? So for the Greeks, you know, it's characters like Theseus and Odysseus, mm -hmm. right? Medea. To talk about what's going on in their own day, right? Oedipus, of course, right? His family at large. Yeah. Um, all of these things. So, you know, for Shakespeare, he wrote about England's kings. But, you know, he's sort of following history and sort of not. Yeah. Even the history that he sort of knew from Hollandshed, he's sort of following and sort of not, right? Mm -hmm. He wrote about Greeks, too. Oh, sure. Romans, I guess. Yeah. Both, yes. So, um, all of these things, right? The idea of, yes, right? It is absolutely part of the ritual to Dionysus. And there are things in it where, that are presumably sort of, that are clearly ritualistic, mm -hmm. right? So the wearing of masks, the chorus itself, the use of a chorus that mm -hmm. dances, um, the choral sort of odes, um, Gospel at Colonus famously is a phenomenal production, first of all, but also very clearly makes the connection that um, a gospel choir today would be very much like the choruses were in ancient Greece. And that's a fair comparison, right? The sort of choral odes and choral competitions, which were also for Dionysus, the Dithyrambic choruses, um, the plays sort of incorporate them in a way, mm -hmm. right? But the chorus, is a the chorus is also a character. They're not just narrators, right? Um... And so that is that is all very interesting. Um, the Greeks themselves thought the theater had evolved out of the dithyrambic chorus, which makes sense in okay. a lot of ways. Which is to say that the different soloists, essentially in the chorus, um, started what we would say acting. And of course, the legendary first character is Thespis, which is why thespian is now a term. Oh, okay. the idea is that he sort of stepped forward and said his own line, like you know, as a character, back to the chorus and had this sort of exchange, right, a dialogue. Oh. Okay. Um, and then you get two characters pretty quickly. Um, 
Aeschylus may have added the second character. Unclear. He certainly has two characters. Um, and then Sophocles as a third character. Um, and then that's it. Greek tragedy has got three speaking characters in the chorus. Um, comedy can have a few more. Yeah. But so, yes, right. It's connected to Dionysus. The masks were dedicated to him afterwards, right? And they were sort of, they disintegrated sort of over the year and then you dedicate the next years. You know, the fact that the the play was really sung and danced by the mm-hmm. chorus, um, right? The term orchestra really means where the chorus danced. All of these things clearly had sort of a ritual or religious overtone, but <laughs> it's still not sort of um, an evolution out of religion necessarily the way we would think, right? Um, where did the, you know, the dithyrambic choruses come from, right? So there is this sort of sense of art. Yes, it's part of religious ritual, but it's a little bit different from the way I think mm-hmm. we assume um, something would have grown out of a religious ritual, yeah. right? There was never what we would consider um, something that was sort of uh, solely ritualistic mm-hmm. that was also theater, right? The theater that the Greeks created is the ritual, even though it has nothing to do with Dionysus, mm. apparently, sort of on the outside, right? The idea of enacting these stories with masks in front of a live audience with singing and dancing hmm. choruses, that itself was a ritual. Interesting. Right? And that's something we don't, I think, recognize today. Or we didn't maybe until suddenly we were all quarantined. <laughs> and suddenly it became just how clear things like going to the theater or to a sports, you know, basketball game, baseball diamond, right? suddenly the ritual aspects of these things became very clear, mm-hmm. I think. Right? It's not just something you do in the afternoon and whatever summer, right? Every Thursday afternoon in the summer, because that's when you have tickets. Yeah. Um, suddenly the fact you can't go play baseball, you're like, okay. I mean, here are all the friends I'm not seeing mm-hmm. when we don't play on our whatever league team, right? We can't go watch baseball, hear all the friends I'm not seeing because we can't go to our normal seats yeah. and we can't do the things we do. We can't go to the bar we go to before or after. We can't, right? That whole ritual suddenly becomes pretty clear. Yeah. Right? Um, so it is a ritual in that sense. Um, but maybe not in the sense the way we consider a mass a ritual, mm-hmm. for example. Right? Um, so that's the Greeks. <laughs> um, they do then kind of give us theater for the West in a lot of ways. Uh, it goes very quickly all over the place. It's invented in a democracy, right? Democratic Athens lasts right. for a bit over 100 years. Um, it lasts, you know, what, a little bit longer. But really, it lasts for about 100 years. Because then there's a coup, because Socrates is evil. Um, we'll footnote that. <laughs> and, um, yep. Hey, he convinced all of his students that they should, like, overthrow the government because they were smarter or whatever. Boo. Um, and he eventually got executed for it because he wouldn't shut up. And he wouldn't leave town. He could have just left town and been exiled and he wouldn't leave. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, we have basically this hundred years of democracy and theater is one of the things they basically invent. Um, they invent sort of everything in that hundred years uh, with the exception of, you know, Homer, as I said as earlier, he said as earlier, philosophy, meh. Anyways, philosophy sort of throughout. But this yeah. sense, right, of the democracy. So theater is invented by democracy. It's part of the dialogue of democracy. That being said, um, a lot of the tyrant, and I don't use that to mean evil rulers, mm-hmm. right? Tyrannos is the Greek term for king. So a lot of the 
uh, surrounding states that have monarchic rulers <laughs> um, really love Greek theater. Love it, love it, love it. To the point that there's um, a sort of legendary story that, of course, may or may not be true, but it's an important legend. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that at one point, this group of Greek soldiers was captured, and they were told they could go free um, if they could sing the chorus uh, from Euripides' Orestes, hmm. which is very famous. Um, and by the way, well, footnote, we do have actually a tiny bit of the music from it. It's one of the only things that we know we have a clip of music from. Oh, wow. Because, um, of course, music doesn't really last, no. right? It's not written down as much as th the words are, because not as many people are going to read the music. I mean, that's the right? problem with all of Shakespeare's plays, right? Is like all of these songs, and then yeah. you get the director's sort of best guess or... Right. Well, some have... What are we going to do with this? Yeah. Some have sort of traditional tunes that have been attached to them for a few hundred years, but, you know, you still mm -hmm. don't know what Shakespeare did. Yeah. Right. Probably not the version of um, Midsummer Night's Dream I saw where they used Beatles songs. Awesome. Like the tunes, the Beatles <laughs> tunes for all of the different songs. That's awesome. Hey. Yeah. I feel like Shakespeare would have done that if yeah, he might have. He had lived after the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Community theater. Yes. I mean, that's where the best guesses come from. Is yeah. Of course, the idea some of, that some of the songs use, like that they do fit these specific tunes, which is is sort of what people did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you fit the words. That's what the Star Spangled Banner is, right? Which is why it sort of fits the music and sort of doesn't, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but, you know, you have this sort of interesting sense of um, the music barely, right, surviving this tiny fragment that survived. Um, and, but how sort of extraordinary, because, mm -hmm. because this chorus was so incredibly famous. That being said, of course, we don't think of Euripides as a composer or Sophocles or Aeschylus, right? Which is really what they were famous for, right? And when I play this for my students and I say, right, the problem sort of with Greek drama is we think of it as not just as white. We've talked about that before on this podcast. Yeah. But we also think of it as the sort of epitome of what is known in the business as, quote unquote, straight theater, mm -hmm. which is opposed to musicals and opera, right? Mm -hmm. Where people just stand around okay. on a stage and talk. Yes. Why is it heteronormative? We don't know, because it's definitely not, because the Greeks weren't. But um, <laughs> this is the term, the, right? The park and um, bark, as they call it. Yes. But Greek theater was not that at all, because it was absolutely sung, it was danced, the music is incredible, and it makes a huge, giant difference when it includes music, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so when we read Greek plays, reading a play anyway is ridiculous, because you're only getting you know, like a tenth of what you're supposed to get. Yeah. But to read a musical is ridiculous, right? Right. You wouldn't read Hamilton. Right. Because that would be weird. <laughs> and if you did, who knows what it would be? I mean, the poetry is amazing. Of course, it's great, but come right. on. Right? I feel like, actually, this is a weird thing about a number of Thomas Pynchon books that characters will mm -hmm. randomly break into song. Um, yes. And I did often sort of get the feeling reading Gravity's Rainbow that he was kind of writing it like the script of a musical. Um, awesome. There's a great song about having bananas for breakfast. Uh, I mean, from Finian's Rainbow to Gravity's <laughs> yes. Rainbow. I feel like that's... <laughs> but that's also, I had to make up my own tune to it brilliant. so that, you know, I could sing right. it to myself because he doesn't include any musical notation. Right. Mm. Yep. These are the mm. problems. And music is so sound, mm -hmm. right? 
but certainly music it's so visceral yeah i do feel like, like if you start to think about greek theater as being like i don't know some sort of tony number yeah. beginning of the tonys it really right. actually changes the way i think about greek culture a lot as opposed yeah. to thinking of it as like you know white men in togas you know standing right. there right they weren't yeah, white they weren't they weren't really in togas no. also at all definitely um besides i mean partly because that's roman but also because you know they're in costume mm -hmm. right <laughs> so um they're in masks which also is just fascinating right it makes everything sort of interesting um yeah and then they're singing and, and dancing yeah. right and the dancing was slow dancing right but um the renaissance creates opera as an attempt to recreate greek theater oh okay basically right they realized they knew it was sung and they tried to recreate it um and if you think of your favorite tragic opera sure or the favorite chorus of your tragic opera i'd like to go with a verity here that's a good choice <laughs> we do the chorus yes. of the hebrew slaves yes i mean that is that is greek theater yeah. in a lot of ways yes All right and actually, wonderfully and amazingly, um, every summer there's a huge festival, the Athens and Epidaurus Theater Festival. And I've been lucky enough to take students to Greece the past two summers. Obviously, we didn't go this summer. Um, and, you know, for the theater history class. And we do the class there. And then I take them all around Athens and show them all sorts of stuff. And, you know, sometimes we go outside of Athens. Um, and one of the things that happens is there's an old theater. It's the oldest theater. So the original theater of Dionysus is still there. Wow. It's, you know, not perfectly restored. It's sort of, they've left it how it is, and they're sort of wondering if they're going to restore it. I think they probably will at this point. But um, next door to it, a few hundred years younger. So the theater of Dionysus has been around since the 500s, at least. Um, the current iteration is from the 500s, basically. Uh, although the stone is a little bit younger, but the but then the theater sort of just down the uh or around the hill a little bit on the same side of the Acropolis, um and they were once connected by a you know passageway um is a newer theater that was built um it's the theater of Herodes Atticus we'll footnote him in the stuff he's an interesting dude um he built a lot of stuff and also may have been evil it's a little bit it's hard to know it's possibly that he killed his wife no we're not quite sure um. But anyway, they built a lot of stuff, uh, some of it together, including like the original Olympic Stadium, which is where the newer Olympic Stadium is that was sort of built over mm. it. Anyway, um, and so he built all this stuff, you know, um, sort of first century this side <laughs> of the year zero. Um, and so Herodes Atticus is the theater of Herodes Atticus. And that one they've restored completely and they have shows there. Um, and so one of the shows that we, that I took my students to see was in fact, uh, Nabucco. Oh, there you go. Which was brilliant. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's phenomenal, right? To see it there because, you know, it's about sort of as close as you can get. I myself personally, this was, the theater at Epidaurus doesn't open until after the class ends. But last summer I went there myself, uh, and saw the entire cycle of uh, the Oresteia, which is the only actual three-play trilogy that we've got. Um, and the only one of the few we know about that actually all three plays are connected. Mm. And each 
each play was directed by a different uh, female Greek director. Cool. Uh, and they did the whole thing, no intermission. It was about four and a half hours. And it was super awesome. Anyway. Um, so there is this sort of interesting, right? Greek theater. Mm -hmm. What was it really? Very different from what you think. Um, but because sort of all the, the states right and around Greece loved it so much, they imported mm -hmm. it. Um, and so theater really spreads throughout, you know, parts of Europe, basically. Yeah. Italy, you know, various parts of North Africa, stuff like this. Um, and then, of course, Rome, in Rome, theater really is just theater. It doesn't have many religious overtones. And from there, you sort of move on right mm -hmm. into medieval Europe, um, which is why. So medieval Europe <laughs> has a theatrical tradition that stretches back not exactly uninterrupted, but does mm -hmm. stretch back to Rome. And then, of course, you have a liturgical tradition where you do have religious drama. Yeah. Right? So, um, in some cases, as part of the actual service, right, part of the liturgy, where a priest might sort of be pretending to be someone else, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least a little bit. And for a long time, there was this theory, right, that theater had evolved from that. Right? But it did not. Mm -hmm. It definitely did not. The theatrical tradition is running. And at the same time, the liturgy is starting to sort of take on aspects of theatrical tradition um, to the point that you get what is known as liturgical drama, right? Some of the sections of the liturgy that start to be acted end up becoming whole plays unto themselves. Um, where the line really is between something that was part of a service and then just a full-fledged Latin drama that covers a religious episode um, there's no clear evolution of any of these mm -hmm. things, right? The stuff that we've got comes from different times, um, but there are definitely some full-fledged sort of dramatic versions, um, that show up quite early. Um, and there's some full-fledged plays that show up. Krotzvit is the earliest named playwright we've got. She's writing these Latin oh, yes. dramas in... Um, oh no, we've talked about her a little bit before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And she's writing sort of in the style of Terence, and she says that specifically. Terence, of course, being a Roman playwright from North Africa, um, who wrote comedies, and so she says, right, she's writing comedies, but about Christian heroes, mm -hmm. uh, particularly women. Right. She's got these famous, wonderful plays, and so there is this interesting way in which. Um, you know, the more people pay attention to what's out there, the clearer it becomes that the theatrical tradition and the religious sort of liturgical tradition are running side by side in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. They're clearly influencing each other at various points and in various places. But there is not an evolution, right? There's not an evolution from one to the other. And there's not even necessarily a clear evolution within, for example, liturgical drama. Mm -hmm. Some places start enacting things very early and start creating things that are clearly very theatrical. Um, and some places continue with the sort of walking the line between is this performance or is this really theater? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that's sort of to cover that. We'll definitely delve more into Europe specifically. We'll talk more about sort of um, religion and theater traditions next time. We'll delve more into some of those questions next time. I figured I would say, however, that when I teach this stuff, one of the things that I do, <laughs> particularly because 
unless it's an upper level class, I don't necessarily want us to compare religious traditions. Um, so what I do is I divide it into performance traditions. Mm -hmm. Right. So we'll start there today and we might have to finish some of it next time. Yeah. Um, but then next I will also talk about religious traditions. Okay. And so one of the things I do, for example, is I talk about, right. So performance traditions, uh, things like chorus, right. The use of a chorus, the use of music, the use of dance, the use of physical comedy, and then puppets. Puppets are a big one. Mm -hmm. For themes, uh, we might talk about things like hypocrisy, right? So sort of satire, right? Yeah. Um, skewering hypocrisy of, you know, the upper classes or, or sometimes religious figures, but, you know, class commentary is something we do. Um, and another thing we do is that we discuss the representation of gender and sexuality, mm -hmm. right? Because, of course, one of the big things is, um, are women performing or not? <laughs> Um, to what extent are men playing women? Is mm -hmm. it possible for women to play men? Um, so all of these things are things that we discuss. Yeah, so we sort of really compare performance traditions globally, um, particularly because all these performance traditions still exist, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then as we get a little more sort of upper level, we might also discuss uh, the connection sort of to religion in various ways. Okay. Yay. Where should we start? Well, why don't we start with just like an overview of cool. some of the different theater forms? Yes. All right. Well, let's start. Okay. We might as well start with India. <laughs> Actually, this isn't sort of first on our list, but... Um, yeah. Big place. Because, yes, it's a huge place. And the theatrical tradition of India is fascinating for a lot of reasons. One is because of how early it is. Mm -hmm. So Sanskrit drama starts maybe a couple hundred years before the year zero. Right. The the most famous plays that we have are from closer to like 300s or 400s after the year zero. Okay. Right. So um, the most the two most famous that we've got are uh, by Kalidasa, um, known as The Recognition of Shakuntala. Mm -hmm. um, and then The Little Clay Cart by Shudraka, um, which is and both of those are probably also sort of fifth century, which mm -hmm. would be of course like 400s. And the reason, though, we know that it all started much earlier um, is the Nayashastra, which is um, this amazing text about performance. Um, it's about theater. It's about dance. It's about music. It covers just all varieties of performance. Um, and it's we don't know exactly when it was written somewhere between <laughs> like 200 before the common era and 200 the common era. Right. OK, that's so, a range. Yeah. So 200 on either side of the year zero, basically. But, you know, whenever it was written, obviously, the traditions had to have existed already for a bit, mm -hmm. right? So, which is why people assume that these traditions probably do sort of predate the year zero a bit. Mm -hmm. Because whenever it was written, right, they had to have already been going enough for this text to be written. Right. Basically. Um, and the thing about these, so Sanskrit dramas, um, Sanskrit, of course, is like Latin, and ultimately a largely classical educated language. Um, and individuals speak Prakrits, sort of the vernaculars, right? Yeah. Um, and Sanskrit plays are written in such a way that sort of certain heroic characters will speak in Sanskrit, but then everyone else will sort of speak in their vernacular. Oh, okay. Right. This is, you see in Shakespeare, um, where heroic characters will speak in heroic couplets. Yep. Or in iambic pentameter and your normal, you know, lay people yes. will speak prose. Yes. 
Yeah. And you have interesting things, of course, like Falstaff sort of goes in and out. Right. Yes. <laughs> he's got some, you know, he's mostly prose, but. Um, he has his moments. He has his moments. So we have this sort of really interesting um, problem in some ways when it comes to Sanskrit drama. And that is mm -hmm. that Sanskrit drama is discovered by Europe in like the 1700s. Mm -hmm. And it has a ginormous influence on European culture. <laughs> so when you read a lot of the stuff today, it really reads like a sort of, you know, 18th century romantic play. Mm. And that that is because, <laughs> um, you know, in some, it's not that that is why Europe did those things, right? But Europe saw this in these plays, right? And also just right. in Sanskrit culture generally, right? When Europe sort of discovered it, and of course what I mean discovered it, what I mean is really when countries, particularly England, went in for colonizing, those who are interested might or might not remember <laughs> in Shaw's Pygmalion, um, there is a huge discussion of spoken Sanskrit and things like this. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Colonel Pickering. Yes. Or Pickering spoken Sanskrit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's just the British fascination with India, right? All of the colonization stuff we've talked about, absolutely just like, you know, to yes. the nth degree. Um, and they're not alone. I mean, Europe in general really just loved it. Um, and supposedly there's this sort of interesting intro in the, where the actor and actress who are supposedly you know, playing the main roles come out and sort of talk to the audience. But of course, that's part of the play, mm -hmm. right? So the actor and the actor who, actor and actress who are really playing those roles. And by the way, I usually say actor for everybody, but I do just want to specify that women did perform in these, right? Um, so you have okay. men playing men and women playing women. Um, and right. So you have the actor, right? The male and female actor who are playing these roles come out and give this intro as though they are these characters who are the producer oh. of the, you know anyway um and then of course they go into the roles but they sort of give the audience this introduction wow. you know it's very what we would say right it seems to be very modern yeah, european very right it's sort of meta shakespeare's yeah. chorus telling us what's going to happen stuff like yeah. this. when we speak of horses think that you see them yes yeah exactly um but it's funny because they come out and he's sort of like dear what play are we doing tonight and she's like oh aren't we doing you know this and he's like oh that's right and right so this, <laughs> anyway and so Goethe apparently was really sort of enamored of this introduction and loved it. And, um, so, you know, right, Germany and many other countries, right, everyone sort of really enjoyed this. But what happens then, right, is that it's, it is what we have said, right? You have to read these things from a standpoint that isn't European. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes harder when, we're, when Europe itself became so immersed in this, right, and really appropriated it to right. an extent that it can now be very difficult looking back to not see all of that in these plays, right? It can be very hard to look at them <laughs> and not see, right, a sort of 17th or 18th century romance mm -hmm. happening, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and yeah, something like sort of Shakespeare or something. I mean, it can be very difficult. Um, and the interesting thing is that it makes me think of translation as a whole. Um, so, for example, when you learn classical latin <laughs> um for example you are not allowed also greek of course uh attic greek the greek of athens right the fifth century right um fifth century bce you're not allowed to use modern cognates most of the time hmm. 
right? Okay. Um, and the reason is because frequently the modern cognate has meanings attached to it, right? Has accrued all of these other meanings um, that the original word didn't have. Okay. Right? Um, and frequently those meanings uh, do have a religious overtone, right? Because the Bible is, the New Testament is written in Greek. Mm-hmm. And then eventually both the Old and New Testament are translated into Latin, the Vulgate. We've mentioned all this also in other episodes. Um, but then a lot of those words sort of permeate the language, particularly romance uh-huh. languages. And of course, English gets so much from French, right? So permeates the language in ways that bring with them the meanings that they accrued from the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Meanings that obviously didn't exist <laughs> in pagan Rome or Greece, right? Yes. And so there's that's sort of very similar to mm-hmm. me, right? The way in which it can be difficult to look back at some of these plays and sort of get all that other stuff out of the way, yeah. right? Because they do read like that. Um, and you really, really do have to delve sort of into the extent to which they are, they're terribly tied to Hindu tradition, although they certainly are. I mean, they include all sorts of aspects mm-hmm. of it and characters. and um, But really, they, you know, <laughs> they're about people, romantic people yeah. stuff right? Which is what plays, you know, which is what we think of plays being about. Um, and so it's this really difficult situation of um, part of the sort of colonial mindset is to look at things that are religious and really think of them as not as sophisticated as things that are secular, mm-hmm. which of course is not true. Right. We have an easier time of that, of course, if the religion in question is a religion like Christianity, which we recognize, <laughs> right? But... Then the problem comes when you look at the past and something that is ostensibly secular, it can be difficult to sort of read it in a mindset that isn't just, oh, this is just like a modern Western thing that we have today. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so these these are gorgeous romantic plays, though, and I recommend them absolutely. They're blatant amazing. Um, but yeah, so that's India. Back up a little bit uh, to China. <laughs> um which it once you show videos of this stuff, of course, again, less so with India, the plays, mm-hmm. but certainly with the dance dramas. Um, China, once you show videos of Chinese opera, um, it becomes very clear very quickly that, you know, these are different from modern uh, Western opera. Yes. Um, they use some masks, I think, right? Yes. And yeah. so the masks. Makeup is mm-hmm. itself uh, just M- incredible. Clip. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the costumes are super (laughs) off the hook. I don't even know. There's like, Chinese opera is so extra. Like, yep. Yes. I mean, it is. It's Broadway in all its glory, right? As much as you can, as many turntables as you can have, right? As many lifts or elevators, as many people on stage at a time as you can muster. Yes. Yeah. Um, the best part, of course, about Chinese opera, that also is a part of Broadway, of course, um, but, you know, in American theater, it's always never quite the same. I mean, it's not the same at all, but just in the sense that, um, the stars of Chinese opera ostensibly, and frequently, this is absolutely true, um, they can sing, they can dance, and they are also at least somewhat acrobatic. Wow. Yeah. Um, and of course, acrobats are part of Chinese opera as well. Yeah. Um, but the lead has to be able to do so many things, right? I feel like nobody has ever accused a uh, Western opera singer of being acrobatic. 
No. No. I don't think. <laughs> but I, there was right. there was a production of Akhenaten that involved juggling and everybody was like, oh my gosh. Yes. But yes. I don't I don't even think the singers juggled. I think it was just like a bunch of jugglers they hired to be in the chorus. Oh really? So. Sometimes you do get stars who do fun things. Um you know, who like do circus tricks on hoops and stuff. You get that occasionally. Yeah. But yeah. mostly, right, the thing is Broadway is really the place where this happens. And the idea is to have someone who can act and sing and dance all at the same time and who's equally mm-hmm. good at all of those. And the general, of course, rule in the business is <laughs> depending on the role, what you're probably yeah. going to have to do is find someone who can either sing really well and also act and dance act really well but also sing and dance right that you sort of choose what yeah. you need the most <laughs> um and there are again to bring up peg Malian, of course famous moments like rex harrison not really singing you know that and yeah. now it's to the point that now it sounds weird for that role to be sung almost mm-hmm. um but that right i that know sense- that i i was a little surprised um hearing some interviews with some of the cast of hamilton oh yeah and people being like you know they could rap and they could act, but right. doing the dancing was like freaking them out or whatever. Yes. Yes. And then you have Davy Diggs so. who can do everything. Yes. Because he is the best. <laughs> Just saying. But he is. Yeah. But anyway, yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think there's even one where yeah. they had to do everything backwards from the previous scene and oh, yeah. everybody hated it. Oh, yeah. Well, but you know. Um, Anyway, it is. It's right. But... It's demanding. It's incredibly demanding. Yeah. And yeah. this is sort of famous, right? It's a famous thing about Broadway. Um, you know, or musicals in general, of course, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the right, Chinese opera, you have to be able to do all those things, right? You cannot be a Chinese opera star and not be able to do all of those things, right? Yeah. If you are a Chinese opera star, it means you can do all of those things, right? Because the movement is such a big part of the role, right? The singing and the movement are together, right? You mm-hmm. cannot, you cannot not do some of them, right? And this is yeah. the thing, right? So for Chinese opera, um, that the movement is part of the language of the role, right? The same way the costume is and the mask or the makeup mm-hmm. tell the audience things that, you know, otherwise they wouldn't know. Yeah. The movement also does that, as of course does the music, right? So Zazu is, right, the sort of term for Chinese theater. Um, I am calling it Chinese opera because that is what we call it today in the West <laughs> because it is sung. But of course, it's Chinese theater, right? It is theater. Mm-hmm. We just separate opera and musicals and, you know, plays where you just talk. <laughs> we separate all these things, but they're all theater. Um, and in China, it's just, you know, it's theater. But um, so Zazu, which uh, gets it, you know, really sort of hits around the year 1000, so the Song Dynasty uh, keeps going, uh, and the Yuan Dynasty, um, 1271 to 1368, are where some of the really famous plays that we've still got are written. Um, okay. But this is very medieval. Um, so some of the most famous, for a couple reasons, um, they've both been done in the West a lot. So uh, it was known in the Midwest as Snow in Midsummer, because it's that's one of the things that happens. Um, but its real sort of full title is The Injustice to Do E, uh, who's our heroine and the lead. And Guan Ha Ching, 1241 to 1320, probably, is the one who wrote it. And then there's Li Chen Fu, also known as Jing Dao, uh, who's active 1264 to 1294 or so. 
um, who wrote uh, what is known as the Rescriptor in Waiting Bow's Clever Trick, The Record of the Chalk Circle, which, hmm. of course, Bertolt Brecht will eventually make the Caucasian Chalk Circle because he translates it to the Caucasus. <laughs> the Chalk Circle, of course, also in the Bible, right? This is Solomon dividing the baby. How oh, the story okay. that was in the Bible also was in China is one of those wonderful things of transmission. Do they have a common source somewhere else? Hmm. Did one of them go to the other place? We don't really know. But, so the, right, Brecht sort of created his whole theory of alienation based on Chinese theater. Um, and his viewing of it, of course, as a Westerner <laughs> who hmm. found it very, very, very strange, right? Um, and he sort of got this brilliant idea that if he, you put audiences sort of off in the way he felt off, but also fascinated by Chinese theater, um, that you would teach them something. Right. So this is sort of the big okay. theory behind his, um, which is fantastic. I mean, I loved Brechtian theater, um, but his idea is what that people would think about it more if they weren't emotionally invested. And mm -hmm. if it's alien enough to you that you won't have that emotional investment. Um, his sense was that if you're too emotionally invested in what happens, then, you know, after the tragedy or the happy ending, depending on which it is, um, you get, mm -hmm. right, this is sort of Aristotle, there's catharsis, right? You sort of feel yeah. purified, you got closure, and then you just go about your day. Like, that's it, right? right. And so you don't go outside and think to yourself, oh my gosh, right, you know, that girl, if only there wasn't racism in the world, she would have had a happy ending, we have to end racism, Right. <laughs> You mm -hmm. do not do that. <laughs> um, whereas if you have to think about it and you're not emotionally invested, his sense was that you will think to yourself, oh, wow, this is really all about racism. Ooh, I see what he's mm -hmm. doing here. Yes, I agree. We should do things to end racism. Right. Of course, Brecht was actually not interested so much in race. He was interested in class. Right. He was he was a true communist <laughs> in that yes. sense. But, you know, a lot of Brechtian theater, a lot of people since have used Brechtian theater for other things, including race. Um, so Susan Lloyd Parks, Brandon Jenkins Jenkins, for example. But anyway, so he specifically took this Chinese play and translated it because um, of his interest in this. Uh, the good person of Szechuan, of course, um, which is, that's the German title in English, Mensch, um, but really is probably better translated as the good woman of Szechuan, which is the title um, that I think Bentley gave it to his translation that was okayed by Brecht is very, very, very heavily influenced by Chinese theater. Um, and one of the things about Chinese theater, the many things, right? The movement and the singing, first of all, right? Um, the idea that the actor, what I said about movement, so that the actor is showing the audience all of these emotions, but does not necessarily embody them the way some Western actors do. Not all Western actors do. Right? Some Western actors can cry without feeling sad, right? For example. Mm -hmm. But Brecht's sort of general sense of Western actors, himself as a Western theater director and writer, right? Um, was that Western actors really have to feel it, right? You know, they have to be angry or be sad, right? You have to go, mm -hmm. you know, do the thing and then learn how to actually, like, make a pot so that you can be a potter whatever it is right like ben stiller's people going to boot camp yes exactly we are back around yeah, yeah. <laughs> and breck thought that was ridiculous as did stiller um and yeah. so basically um his sense right of chinese theater as a 
right, um, theatrical form where the movement, it's all about gesture and movement, minute detail, right? But um, that the actor also doesn't necessarily have to be emotionally invested in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, again, that isn't isn't true because in real life, you know, some actors are and some actors aren't, right? In Chinese right. theater as well as in Western theater. But this was sort of Brecht's sense. So he really loved that. Um, one of the other things about Chinese theater is that, of course, at the time Brecht saw it, men only. So mm-hmm. men played women. And that was something else, right? The idea that the gender of the actor didn't have to match the gender of the role, which was, of course, not revolutionary to Western theater. But yeah. to the time Brecht was writing was not usually done, right? Um, mm. You didn't have these sort of single cast Shakespeare's necessarily happening at the time the way you do now. Yeah. Um, and so that was really sort of a revelation to him as well. Now, the interesting thing about Chinese theater, actually, is that it's the only sort of main historical tradition, you know, of the big ones, where historically, uh, not only could men play women, but women could also play men. <laughs> oh. Yes. And it was based really on the sort of um, troop format. So you had to have a troop. And there would be the leader of the troupe, and they played all the lead roles. Mm-hmm. And the lead roles also are the roles that sing. So not everyone else necessarily sings, just the lead role. And it's really a form of ballad opera. Yeah. Which is actually what we've talked about. Chinese opera, what I've heard of it, is mm-hmm. a very stylized type of singing. Yes. Um, it is very different from, like, Chinese pop music. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, even traditional songs. Well, that's Um, also partly because of how old it is, right? Of course it's modernized in a lot of ways, but some Mm -hmm. parts of it sort of haven't. And one of the things about the singing is that you can tell when you hear it why certain roles could be played equally by men or women. Mm -hmm. Right? It's very much like the countertenor in Western opera. Also roles that can be played by either men or women. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of the gender of the character. That's basically the point, right? Because if your voice hits those notes, that's all that's required, right? Yeah. And so you can see how, right, men and women can sing it the exact same way. It depends. Mm-hmm. That being said, Chinese opera today is, you know, everyone sings mostly, and it's not necessarily a ballad opera quite the way it used to be. Um, traditionally, it was a ballad opera in the very real sense that um, there was a sort of set playlist, right? So there's the set tunes. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is an opera that will be written with, you know, these ten musical compositions. Right, so you already know the music; it's the words that are different. Mm. Right, so audiences okay. will go and they kind of know the set list, so to speak, but they don't know the lyrics. Right, interesting. Yeah, and as I said, that's you know the Star Spangled Banner got put to whichever random music. Right, we used to do this all the time. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't happen as much anymore, but as you said, right, a Midsummer Night's Dream using Beatles music. Yeah. Um, if that were a common way of doing Midsummer, Weird Al has made his entire career doing this. I mean, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, John Gay, The Beggar's Opera, which of course Brecht again, Three Penny Opera. <laughs> yes. Um, The Beggar's Opera, the original, the Brecht Three Penny, of course, music by Kurt Vile. But yeah, phenomenal, which gives fantastic. us the wonderful song Mac the Knife. Yes. Um, which itself, of course, has been done in many iterations. But um, the original Beggar's Opera, 
um, is done to all known tunes. So he wrote out mm-hmm. so all the songs. Then there's a little thing that's like you know this is to the tune of whatever, <laughs> right? Oh. and you know the t- and you sing it. Yeah, so that's a ballad opera. So Chinese theater was traditionally ballad opera, which makes a lot of sense. If you have traveling mm-hmm. troops, um, you can't necessarily always be learning new music. How are right. you going to find the music that you have? Right, it's much easier to get the words, but how are you going to find the music that you need? If you already know all the tunes, perfect. Yeah, sure. Right. Um, so uh, India, right, as I said, you have um, these very sort of elaborate romance dramas. Um about sort of class and love and you know it's basically you know love right lovers separated for various reasons and how do they get back together ah will it work out mm-hmm. yes it, it will be a happy ending um but china right uh we have of course we do have the use of the chorus um we have um dancing and acrobatics and all sorts of wonderful movement theater um we do have sort of masks and very sort of mask-like makeup. Um, and in addition, right, when it comes to gender, we have some really sort of interesting um, casting and in that it just depends on the sort of who the leader of the troupe is, then they play all the leads, and then you have the people in the troupe who play all the secondary roles and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they may or may not normally play roles that are their gender. It sort of depends, right? And there's a really famous painting of a troupe that's led by a woman, um, but she is dressed in the painting um, in a way that makes it pretty clear that she tends to play male lead roles, right? And then some of the other people in the painting, there's some people who are male but seem to be wearing fake beards. <laughs> hmm. um, then there are some men in the back who are the musicians who seem to have real beards, right? Um, anyway, so this sense of, right, um, it's definitely, right, a musical and movement-based theater form, um, but really sort of interesting roles with gender, some really great female heroes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's right. China. We might have to pick up next time with Japan. Yeah. Let's talk about Japan next time because okay, they have uh, too many theatrical things to do it in like the next two minutes. They do. Cause we're going to have to talk yeah. about three separate ones. And one of them is going to take us into puppets. Okay. Yay. So next oh, time we'll exciting. do that. Okay. Sounds good. Wow. Because puppets are the best. I love puppets so much. No, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yay. But yeah. Um, oh, and for more dance dramas, we'll probably talk more about dance dramas like the Americas have dance dramas. Uh, the Mayans, the Aztecs. Yeah. Um, we did talk a little bit about some of those I think we when did, we were doing yeah. decolonization, but only sort of in right. passing. So right. that'll so be the, cool to we'll, come back to. Yes. Okay. Well, I think this is going to be a great couple of episodes, so I'm I'm really excited to talk about all these things. Because theater is the most awesome thing ever. Yeah. And we must support it. Yes. Well, I think we got to cut it off right there. Yep. But uh, thanks to everybody who has uh, written to us or, you know, texted us or just commented on Facebook saying, hey, this is a great podcast. We really enjoy it. Um, please keep doing that because it definitely makes us feel pretty happy that we are being heard yes and if you feel like it please leave us a review on itunes especially that seems to be like the big place it can help people find us or hey tell a friend that's a great way to spread word other than that you can visit our website at askmedievalist.com 
we have a contact us form there. You can join our Facebook group, which is also called Ask a Medievalist, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> we don't post very much, mostly to let people know that we have a new episode up. And we have a Twitter account, which also should tweet automatically whenever we have um, a new episode. Yay! So, these are all great ways. Yeah. So, until next time, everybody, I hope you all are staying safe and healthy, and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.